0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the terror attack in Manchester and the state of the general election campaign. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, who's at the G7 Summit. Defence and Security Editor Sam Jones, election analyst Matt Singh and political commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. Britain was shocked this week as it experienced another terror attack. On Monday evening, Salman Abedi entered the Manchester Arena and set off a bomb as an Ariana Grande pop concert was concluding. 22 were killed and dozens others injured The security services appear to have uncovered a terrorist network in Manchester There have been numerous arrests since then The UK's threat level has been raised critical Its highest level and so does he have been deployed to the streets Sam Jones, just to begin It's obviously these things are very, very hard to predict But the security services have been thinking That some kind of attack like this was coming The inevitable question is, could more have been done?
2: In some ways, you could say more could have been done, that more resources could have been thrown at the problem. It's relatively well known inside Whitehall that the security services are fairly stretched in terms of the amount of subjects of interest that suspects that they have to keep tabs on. There isn't really any call for new legal powers. We've just had the Investigatory Powers Bill, the so-called Snoopers Charter, come through. And I don't think, subsequent to that, anyone is any longer feeling like they don't have the ability to get at information where they need it. The scale of the problem is just so big and so the real question is how do you tackle that and there is a bit of a sense that maybe it's not a problem for the security services so much as if it's a little sort of broader social societal problem that the home office needs to come to terms with and we've heard a little bit this week about the repurposing of the prevent program which is part of the government's counter-terror strategy called contest which deals with trying to de-radicalize communities and to try and spot potential vulnerable individuals who may be susceptible to terrorist messaging there's more of a kind of open question on that and it's successes. I certainly think most people in, in government, in Home Office, feel it is a sound measure. And when they talk about repurposing it or redesigning it, they don't mean kind of wholesale. They mean sort of bits around the edges. But it's been unpopular with civil liberties campaigners for some time now. There is evidence that it's unpopular uh, in some areas of the kind of more hardline Orthodox Muslim community as well. But just to go back to this question of the scale of the problem, and as you said, an attack has been predicted for some time now by the security services, there's around 850 Britons that have gone to fight in Syria and Iraq, and that's been the the main focus of MI5's caseload. About half of them have returned. But as this instance, this plot has highlighted, there is a broader community as well, people who are in the UK, so-called blocked travellers, i.e. people that might have wanted to go there but were stopped because of the efficiency of the system, or people that might have been elsewhere, as in this case with Libya. And so this really isn't necessarily a purely Syrian-Iraqi problem.
1: George Parker, obviously this was a moment where Theresa May was in safe territory because as her six years as Home Secretary, she's well accustomed to these threats and the challenges that come with them. And as Prime Minister, she attempted to come across as a safe ensure a pair of hands here but she has come under some criticism as often happens with these things the politics of it has begun and people have been saying well actually she was responsible for cutting police numbers army numbers and what have you and this is the line we've heard from UKIP this week that she bears some responsibility for what happened.
3: Yeah I think that's right the effect of the Manchester bombing is. Transformed the electoral campaign and obviously drew a line under several days of very bad publicity for Theresa May around the unravelling of her social care pledge. And you're right that it put her back onto a much stronger footing. She was able to appear in Downing Street as a leader of the nation. She's been at the NATO summit and later at the G7 summit in Sicily, where I am now, gathering world leaders, uniting the world against terrorism and all the rest of it, which looks good in terms of the optics the campaign. But you're right, she is vulnerable. And Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, was making charges that she'd cut the police. And also Jeremy Corbyn is making the allegation, of course, that previous British wars in Afghanistan, Libya, and Iraq contributed to the problem. But I think on balance, Reza May is someone who I think the public generally trusts being a safe pair of hands in this kind of a situation. But, you know, it's been a tough week all around for the Prime Minister. Sam, what do you
1: make of these allegations about cuts to defence services. This is one that we're going to hear probably quite a lot of the final two weeks of the campaign gets going, this idea that Theresa May is trying to say, I'm the safe, stable pair of hands you can trust. But actually, as you said, the services are stretched. Is she to blame for that in a way? And does that actually make a real impact?
2: Well, not for the intelligence agencies. Don't forget that police numbers certainly have gone down on her watch as Home Secretary. But it wouldn't have been necessarily her decision other than via Cabinet to make cuts to the other armed forces, which we've seen some of in the last parliament after 2010, when there was quite uh, steep cuts. Subsequently, the military budget has been increased, The, the intelligence services budgets have been increased quite significantly. And again, although they are stretched, I don't think they feel that throwing money at the problem is necessarily going to improve it. I don't think they're necessarily calling for more funding. One of the interesting things with the intelligence services is that you can add funding to them, but it takes a long time to recruit people into the intelligence services. And it takes a long time. For them to build up new capabilities, years. So, whatever changes we make to them now will have some time to run through and to take effect. But on policing, there maybe is an argument to say, certainly in response to this attack, that the police cuts have been a bad thing. As all of us have seen, there are troops on the streets, this thing called Operation Tempera, which is a long standing plan to put troops on the streets if they're needed in the event of a raise in the terror threat level. But on the other hand, Could more police have stopped this plot? No, I don't think so. This plot wasn't stopped because of an intelligence problem rather than a policing problem. This guy blew himself up outside a packed concert venue. We can't become a police state and have armed police outside every venue in the country on any given evening. That's not viable. So I think there's a limit to how far that criticism can run.
1: So, George, going back to the point you made earlier about Jeremy Corbyn's response to this, he gave a wide-ranging foreign policy speech on Friday morning where he was very much channelling the views of Seamus Milne, his head of strategy, who's written columns over many years saying the West foreign policy is often to blame for the rise of radicalism. Is that something that might actually go down quite well with voters? Because a lot of the conversation after the Manchester attack has been, as Sam was saying, how do we take on the fundamental wider issue as Well, as just policing and army and that sort of thing, you know, some voters might think actually Mr. Corbyn's got a point there.
3: I think that's right, and I think especially that's the case with core Labour supporters. And after all, Jeremy Corbyn is really out to mobilise the party's support, and I think that's one of the things that's happened over the last few days, actually, funny enough, after the launch of the Labour Manifesto, which was read in tooth and claw. And now Jeremy Corbyn sort of revisiting some of his campaigns of the past against the Iraq war, for example, and trying to draw a connection between British government policy. And the rise of the terrorist threat. So I think you're right. I think that the argument will resonate somewhat. I think the Conservative Party thinks that he's made a mistake here, a tactical blunder. They think that, well, as in the words of Ben Wallace, the security minister, the timing was crass and disappointing. So I think the Conservatives will take this intervention by Terry Corbyn as a sign that he's in some way trying to shift responsibility away from the terrorists and on the British government. But I think Jeremy Corbyn felt that as we go into the final stretch of the campaign now, he's got to get back onto the topic that the nation is talking about. He couldn't really come back into the campaign talking about health or social care. I think he felt he had to make a foreign policy speech, which would probably explain the timing, even if it did seem slightly impelicitous.
1: And Sam, what essentially what happen next. They we're at the critical threat level now. How long will that remain and how long will the troops remain on the streets? And is there going to be some kind of investigation into what happened? Because as I said earlier, there seems to have been some kind of network that has been uncovered here. So it's not just what we saw in Westminster, which was the lone wolf attack.
2: Well, so far, the police and the security services have been heavily focused on trying to uncover the extent of that network. And I think the critical threat level is going to stay until they feel They've got sort of a handle on it. As we've seen in the past sort of 24 hours, quite a significant amount of bomb-making material was found in the Abedi household in Manchester, and that will obviously raise questions about whether there are other devices. I mean, One of the key worries here was that when ISIS put out its somewhat sort of slipshod claim of responsibility for this attack, they indicated that there were multiple bombs, and so that's been a question that's dogged uh, police in their investigation. I think the government is very sensitive to the fact that the threat level is at critical during an election campaign. And they'll be very sensitive to any criticism of that. So I think they would want to bring it down again. I mean, don't forget as well that the threat level is decided by an independent body called JTAC, the the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, part of MI5. And the Prime Minister doesn't have an input into where that puts the threat level. The response, of course, is politically decided, all these troops on the streets. But again, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a long lasting kind of situation like that we've seen in France. I think we should remember the context for all of this and it's worthwhile comparing ourselves to the situation being on the continent for some time now in Germany and France and a few other places where they've been dealing with these attacks for a couple of years and in France you've had a sort of near perpetual state of emergency and not just one network but multiple networks and so there is a fair amount to be relatively thankful for. In previous instances with the threat level going up to critical it stayed there for only very short periods
1: of time. I think that's probably going to be the case this time around. George, this brings back a memory me somewhat of 2003 when Tony Blair put tanks outside Heathrow Airport and he claimed this was necessary for national security. But if I remember rightly, he was criticised quite heavily for this as it was seen as politicising the event. But I don't think anybody's accused Theresa May of that apart from some very odd fringe figures who have said this is some kind of false flag operation.
3: I think that's right. I think behind the scenes, privately, some quite senior Labour figures have questioned some of the way in which Theresa May has handled this. And they recall that after the murder of the Labour MP, Joe Cox, that there was a cross-party show of unity with the three party leaders standing together. And they feel that Theresa May hasn't really reached out to the Labour Party on this, and I think the early decision to put troops on the streets, there were one or two people, as you say, more on the fringes who criticised that. But you're right. Tony Blair was heavily criticised for sending the tanks out to Heathrow in February 2003. It was just a month before the start of the Iraq War, and it was seen as sort of a political attempt to mobilise public opinion behind the conflict. And I think it caused quite a heavy drop in US tourism to London as a result.
1: And do you think Prevent is going to become a part of the campaign much that Sam was saying that there was already talk of reviewing it, tweaking it, changing it, but there's been a lot of figures out and about criticising Prevent at the moment, saying it's not doing its job. And I think Amber has already said that this summer it was going to have some kind of relaunch.
3: Well, it might become part of the campaign, but if you talk to the pollsters, you talk about the big four issues that the public really care about in elections, and in particular this election, which are immigration, health, the economy, and now Brexit. Now, If terrorism and security and the prevent strategy are top of people's minds when they're going to the polling booths on June the 8th, then of course that should probably play to Theresa May's strengths. But I wonder, you know, elections are decided by a whole range of quite big factors. People make up their minds quite a long time before they take a view on the leadership potential of the, the main party leaders. And I wonder whether, when we look back at this election, whether the political impact of this atrocity in Manchester is can be quite as big as it seems at the moment.
1: I think, as Matt Singh said in a piece for the FT, this will test the theory that campaigns don't actually affect election results.
3: Yep, I mean, that, this will be a test of that. I suppose the interesting thing was the dynamic of the campaign, which was basically frozen in aspic immediately, the attack took place. And what we don't know is quite what would have happened in the following few days after Theresa May's you turn on social care. We've got a bit of a glimpse of a prime minister caught in the headlights in that interview with Andrew Neil on the BBC One show on Monday evening, where she looked very, very defensive, very wobbly, quite the opposite of the strong leader that she's been trying to present. And we don't know how that might have unravelled further in the days after that. Would the Tories have come under pressure, for example, to say where the cap was going to be set for social care bills? So there's things we don't really know, but I suspect in the end this election will be decided by bigger things in voters' minds, other than just security and terrorism.
1: The general election campaign was halted after the Manchester attack and resumed quietly on Thursday. UKIP released its manifesto, which was almost entirely focused on immigration and integration. But the race has taken a somewhat unexpected turn, with some new polls out suggesting that Labour is picking up support. Before Theresa May called the election, the Conservatives had about a 20-point opinion poll lead. Now that's down to just five points, according to a new YouGov survey on Friday. So what's going on here? Is this the manifestos, the Tory misfire on the so-called dementia tax, or something else? So Matt Singh, can you just give us your overview on where the race is and what's happened over the past week after the manifestos have been released and in the wake of the Manchester attack too?
4: Sure. So there's clearly been, in terms of the gap, which is the thing that matters in terms of seats in our electoral system, there has been clearly been a move in Labour's favour. Now, taking that apart, there's been a relatively small drop in terms of the Conservative vote share. There is clearly a hit, which quite likely is to do with the social care U-turn and everything else following the manifesto launch. But the big move, and it's really a continuation of a move that had been going on before, is that Labour's poll ratings, and in particular Jeremy Corbyn's personal ratings, have continued to improve. Now, this has been echoed. So apart from the YouGov poll that came out last night there was also another poll from Kantar Public which showed a slightly larger lead, an eight point lead but still a substantial reduction from their previous poll. So in terms of what's actually going on, it does seem as though Labour is picking up support across the board but particularly among younger people and increasingly among people who didn't vote last time. Now obviously this raises the question of will these groups of people vote this time? There are two big problems that pollsters have. First of all, there may be people telling them that they're going to vote and vote Labour who might end up not actually voting. The second problem, which my sense is is perhaps a bigger worry for pollsters, is that they're getting people who say they'll vote Labour and actually will vote, but don't represent their demographic particularly well because they're too interested in politics it's a chronic problem getting people who are not interested in politics particularly younger people to take polls about politics so the people they do get may not be typical that's going to be something that the polls are actually having a big meeting today and they'll be discussing all of that sort of stuff but they won't really know until the 9th of june
1: Either way, Miranda, it certainly created some jitters, because obviously when this election was called, it was expected to be a shoe in for Theresa May, and we talked about big gains, a 100-seat majority, all this kind of stuff, and it's all sort of seemed to be falling apart a bit. The first thing was this manifesto misfire, I spent four or five days going around Teesside, Tyneside, Northumberland, the Scottish borders last week, and I was struck by every single Conservative candidate I spoke to had raised the so-called dementia tax as a an alarming doorstep issue. And it was not necessarily because people were against it. It was because they didn't understand it. And introducing such a hugely complicated policy change in a short campaign really does look to have been a big mistake by Theresa May's team.
5: I think there are two main problems with how the Conservative campaign has developed over the last few days, leaving the events in Manchester aside. And one is, as you quite rightly say, that the Labour Party got lots of coverage for a manifesto, which was essentially like the entire Contents of a sweetie shop for the electorate. Whether you want to attack it as populist or commend it as popular is your choice, but it certainly went over well. Even people who you wouldn't think were a fan of such things thought, for example, rail renationalisation might be quite a good idea. In the strangest quarters, I have heard this said. The other thing was that they were then up against a conservative manifesto, which was much more an instruction to the population to take the medicine. So you had a very unappealing conservative manifesto and a very promise the earth labor manifesto and then the social care so-called dementia tax became the kind of focus for the unattractiveness of that whole conservative program the second problem the conservative party had had is this is not the campaign they were supposed to be fighting they were supposed to be fighting a linton crosby playbook campaign He knows how to win elections. You're supposed to be as dull as possible, have one slogan, one strong leader and bore the electorate until polling day with your singular approach. The problem for Theresa May is she's also got powerful characters around her, principally Nick Timothy, her policy chief, who wanted a manifesto that was ambitious and a radical programme for what a May government could do. The two things do not gel. You cannot have a boring, Linton Crosby-style formula and a bunch of incredibly controversial epoch-making measures to transform the nation, most of which sound difficult, dangerous and as if they might hit you in your pocket to the voters. Now,
1: before we get too carried away with this, imagine Jeremy Corbyn standing outside Downing the Street, there are two still key indicators that suggests that Theresa May is still going to triumph in some form. One is her personal leadership ratings, and the second is trust on the economy. And these are always the classic indicators. If I'm right in saying I don't think anybody has ever won an election where being behind on both of those. And Jeremy Corbyn they are still very far behind. But Mr Corbyn's ratings have improved, but he's still way behind Theresa May.
4: Is that right? Yes, that's right. And as far back as polling records go, there's no example of somebody being behind on both measures and winning usually the same person is ahead on both and that person and their party win so they haven't as far as i'm aware been any more polling on the economic competence since the events of the last week but that said i mean the conservatives have consistently had a big lead on that recently in terms of personal ratings yes jeremy corbyn's ratings had been consistently below 20 percent until this month and they've now shot up so this is on the Force between the two, as who would make the best Prime Minister. So, Corbyn has gone up from consistently below 20% up to 28% in the most recent poll. Theresa May had been somewhere around 50%, now down to 45%. So, it's a much bigger move for Jeremy Corbyn. And it does seem as though, I mean, in terms of the people who disapprove, people who are hostile, even sort of among current Labour voters who were not even saying he would make the best Prime Minister, he has made some headway there. And crucially, he has now overtaken Don't Know. So he's now uh, clearly a clear clear second choice. All of these are things that we need to bear in mind because they tend to be less volatile and more indicative often of the final outcome than the top line numbers, but they have closed considerably. They will be making Downing Street uncomfortable, there's no question at all about that. And uh, as Miranda says, we've got a very different campaign to the one we thought we'd have.
5: That's very interesting what Matt says because, of course, we do have very recent examples of a poll a couple of weeks out from the day on which people actually go to the real vote, which looks as if things are going the other way. And in a strange way, it energises the last fortnight and can change the result back to where we thought we were at the beginning of the campaign. So often you get these sort of spikes for the other side in a campaign. It happened famously in the Scottish referendum and energised the Remain in the UK campaign to go and make all sorts of promises in Scotland in order to slip it back. That may have made the difference or that may have been a wrong poll. And it happened again with Ed Miliband sort of edging ahead a little bit in one poll two weeks away from polling day last time. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a fundamental problem with the Tory prospects. But I do think there might be something slightly deeper going on, actually, because of the problems with the Tory party campaign.
1: I think this is true. And again, from my doorstep experience from around the country, there is a lot of dislike for Jeremy Corbyn out there. And that's just across different areas in the country, from Cambridge to the West Country, to the North, to the Midlands, that people have all sorts of reasons why they don't like him and it's the phrase that you've termed before Matt which is the I'm normally labour but but Brexit, but Jeremy Corbyn what have you. So it'll be interesting to see how that manifests itself when you get into that final two weeks and I think you're completely right Miranda, that there'll be a lot of conservative activists too who will see this and suddenly think, oh my word, I now need to actually get out and make sure Jeremy Corbyn doesn't become Prime Minister because before it was where you could just sit back and hand out a few leaflets and assume it would all be alright.
4: Yeah and I think that when you've had these examples in the past, some of it has simply been people mis Reading or misinterpreting a poll, the one in the Scottish referendum, things were pretty close anyway. The fact that they happened to be close to the line, you got one that was slightly the other side, provokes a hugely disproportionate reaction. Likewise, the two or three polls in the last campaign that put Ed Miliband ahead after the Easter weekend caused another newspaper to put out a very bold splash that subsequently turned out to be. It was the uh, day, not day the case. polls turned. Indeed. And then a couple of hours later, some polls came out showing something completely different. I mean, you do tend to get a lot of genuine. In volatility with vote shares moving around a lot I mean the best example of recent times is Clegmania where you had a huge surge in the Lib Dems up into the 30s and putting them in the lead and then when the votes were counted they were up 0. 0.6 of a point from 2005. <laughs>
5: and lost seats.
4: And lost seats because part of that was because of the Conservatives gaining and taking more off the Lib Dems but also I think it may have perhaps have caused them to put resources in the wrong places, anticipating gains.
5: Well, this is what's so fascinating about it, because when you look back at it, you don't really know whether it was the panic about the poll changing the campaign and changing the motivation of activists, etc., that then brought the eventual result back into line or whether the poll was just wrong and people were going to shift back anyway. So it's kind of fascinating because we will, in a sense, never know.
4: Indeed, although one thing we know this time is that these Tory threats about what might happen, you know, maybe hung parliament, those sorts of things, do actually seem a lot more believable now than they did a few weeks ago. Just to move on to the other campaign story this week, Miranda, which was the UKIP manifestos.
1: They began campaigning again after the awful events in Manchester. And their manifesto really struck me as something as just out of ideas, that it was all focused on immigration, integration and very they accused the Prime Minister of bearing some responsibility for what happened and Suzanne Evans, who's Deputy Chair of UKIP, at her time in the Home Office and cuts to policing and armed forces, had left the UK more vulnerable, which is a similar line we've heard from Labour's Jeremy Corbyn. What was your take on UKIP's position at the moment? Because I'd say it was a core vote strategy, but not really sure they have a core vote left anymore.
5: No, absolutely. I mean, it seemed like a fringe manifesto and it contained extremely eccentric things. My personal favourite was that we should ban the burqa because veiled women are not getting enough vitamin D from sunlight, which was just a marvellous thing to have escaped the editorial board even of UKIP, to forget to cross that one out. I think you're right, they're only standing in 377 seats, so they're not really a proper national party this time. They have a huge problem if the Labour Party has managed to promise some things in its manifesto that reattract some of its faithful tribal core. That's a problem for UKIP. And of course, Theresa May's sort of bodicea act on Brexit, as we've discussed before, attracts a lot of those UKIP supporters from the past couple of years. So I think they've got a lot of structural problems and also... Paul Nuttall, frankly, doesn't go over to the same kind of golf club type sympathy for UKIP as Nigel Farage did. And I think with these one issue parties, once you lose the figurehead, you have a lot of problems to contend with.
1: This is a very interesting point because we've talked about the collapse of UKIP before, Matt, but the role of Paul Nuttall in this, someone pointed out to me this week that Nigel Farage was that kind of guy who went down well in the Tory shires. Paul Nuttall is a very different kettle of fish, and he's got a very different personality. And what was your take on where the party's at the moment?
4: the vote share has dropped. The 4% in. Four, 4%. And some pollsters are now taking into account the fact that you could aren't standing everywhere, so they only give you the options that are on the ballot paper in your area, but not all of them. So, in fact, you could vote share could still even be slightly overstated. Bear in mind, 2010, they got 3.2%. It's not inconceivable they do even worse although it's hard to be precise yeah I mean in terms of the leaders as you say Nigel Farage was hugely popular and hugely well known Paul Nuttall does not have the same kind of popularity and in fact a lot of people are not aware of him in terms of targeting Labour that's very different to the sort of Farage approach but he certainly seemed the right strategy at the time but in reality a lot of the Labour support has gone directly to the Conservatives so. it's
1: quite curious as well Miranda how little we've seen of Nigel Farage I don't think he's done anything really in this campaign at all I know he's not running for parliament or anything but as one of the party's biggest cheerleaders I expected him you know to at least pop up a few times and support the party's cause I don't think he's done any major event at
0: all.
5: No indeed and actually you wonder whether he's now slightly embarrassed about his former party and whether he actually wants to be associated with it because Nigel Farage's mission in politics was to get the UK out of the EU and he's managed to persuade the Conservative Party through fear of what he had created to do that for him so in fact he may well have feel that he's achieved his aim and so may many of their supporters.
1: And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. There's only two weeks to go until the election. Until then, you can follow the FT's coverage every day on ft.com or sign up to our election countdown email where every weekday evening I'll give you some thoughts on what's been happening. Thanks for listening. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com
3: work. Shopify.com work.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.